0: Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. Recent podcasts, audio on demand, and live streaming available from the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website, and you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. I'm Kate Elliott. Today on the program we'll be broadcasting one of the presentations from the 2015 Animal Activist Forum. The talk was titled One Bad Day, a look into the transportation and slaughter of animals and was presented by Angela Pollard, an animal lawyer, and Josh Agland, an ex-slaughter industry insider. You often hear the justification, particularly from free-range farmers, that the animals that they breed, grow and kill for profit are treated well and they only have one bad day. The one bad day that they're referring to is the day the animals are transported and slaughtered in the abattoir. Josh Agland spent three years working in an abattoir and witnessed all stages of the slaughter process. In this presentation, he shares the realities of that one bad day. Angela Pollard provides the legal backdrop to Josh's practical experience by outlining the Model Code of Practice for the Welfare of Animals, specific to slaughtering establishments.
1: Okay, well thank you all for coming. There was motivation behind this project, Um, Josh Aglin and myself, um, in terms of our backgrounds. I previous to working for Mark Pearson uh, as his senior advisor with him in Parliament in New South Wales, I'd worked for a number of years at the Northern Rivers Community Legal Centre for the Animal Law and Education Project. And we did a lot of work about raising uh, issues that you're all familiar with. And in particular, we did a lot of stuff around live export when we had the Four Corners expose, and we did a lot of community forums and campaigns. And people were very aware of the cruelty that happens in the Middle East in relation to live export. But one of the things that we came up against a lot of the time, was in relation to our domestic slaughter of animals. And there was this belief system that, in fact, we have all these standards in place, everything's fine, and that there was that comfort for the public that all the bad stuff was happening out there. So really that's part of the basis of the talk. The other thing that um, caused this talk to coalesce is I started working with Mark, with Josh Agland, um, and Josh and I were talking. Josh's background is he, as a very young man, spent three years working in an abattoir and I thought that's really very important that we have someone in the movement with that direct, credible experience as you all know. And from him telling those stories I said, look, this is really powerful. If we can get this stuff out there we can start breaking down the disinformation that's out there that, that our abattoirs are fine. The other thing... That really moved me when I was working at the Community Legal Centre and doing that work with the community is I had a massive fail. I managed to convince many people in my community that intensive farming was very cruel and that animals suffered during that process. And so as a result, some of the people that I worked with became vegetarians or vegans, but sadly it backfired in that Within my own organisation, because I live in a rural area, I had a colleague who decided to set up a free-range pig farm herself. And so she then supplied free-range, organic cruelty-free, bacon and ham and pork to people in my community legal centre. And the idea behind that was that these animals had had a good life. They had been respected and cared, been cared for. And, in fact, right now in my home freezer, there is probably some dead pig because my partner of 20 years eats it as well. She believes that free-range food means that the animals have been cared for, they have, they, they have died with honour and respect. Because of this incredible cognitive dissonance that we've all managed to break through, we all know that's nonsense. We all know that if we were, if we were taken by a serial killer, we wouldn't feel particularly honoured or respected if he then cannibalised us. I mean... It's silly, we know it's silly, but the incredibly powerful and complex cognitive dissonance from people that I get, and particularly up north, where I'm from, around the northern rivers, is that with the groups that I'm working with broadly across um, a social justice framework and an environmental framework, is there is a big movement up there for sustainable farming, but unfortunately that sustainable farming includes people who call themselves free-range and organic farmers, and they believe that they are providing a good life for those animals, and hence the title for the talk, which is One Bad Day. These animals have a great time while, while they're there. I've given them everything they need. They're not in cages. They're not in, they're not in sheds. They're, they're, you know, they haven't been whatever the animal is. They haven't been um, you know, de-beaked or de-horned or whatever. They've led a natural life. Well, of course, they've led a fraction of their natural life, And we're not going to go into that. We're not going to talk about how even in the best free-range systems we have animals that live a tiny fraction of their life. And this talk isn't really about the autonomy of farmed animals. That's not what we're going to talk about because, of course, many of us in this room would say even if we provided animals with no suffering prior to their death, that we would have philosophical and moral concerns about how we treat animals and why we think we should be able to farm them and eat them anyway. That's not the purpose of this. The genesis of this is around really me exploiting the fact that I've got someone that I know that can actually talk about what actually happens in abattoirs and I can pretend to know something about the law of abattoirs and how that comes to us. So that's the basis of the talk. So I'm going to give you the background to our laws and to our legal system very briefly because I know people aren't that interested and then Josh will talk about his experiences in the abattoir. So in terms of our animal welfare legal framework, it's mostly a state-based system. So each of the different states... So in New South Wales, where I'm from, we have the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, and that's what it's called in Victoria as well, but the other states have different names for their legislation. So most of the animal laws that we bump into when it's to do with um, animal cruelty, animal welfare, it'll be different according to each state. The federal government is responsible for live export, or where we're crossing borders between states, or where we've got international uh, or national fishing zones. So most of the laws in relation to abattoirs, except for where those abattoirs are working to export chilled beef, mostly, overseas, mostly it's state-based law. And what happens is that the states periodically get together, and that's through COAG, which is the Coalition of Australian Governments. It's where the state Um, agriculture ministers get together and they try and, as much as possible, make the laws uniform, but it's a glacially slow process. And in actual fact, these laws provide limited protections for farm animals. For any of you who are aware of it, there's a lot more protections, and the laws themselves are very poor, but there are a lot more protections for companion animals than there are for farmed animals. The exclusions for farm animals are most remarkable, particularly in relation to them being kept in enclosures. We know that there are laws... For companion animals, where there would be serious questions about animal cruelty. So, in New South Wales, for example, there are minimal provisions for water and for feed, and to the degree to which farm animals are lawfully allowed to suffer. Um, So, for example, you've got Legislation that really, instead of it saying it's for animal welfare, what the legislation actually does is it encodes how cruel you can be to an animal. So when you're reading this as an animal advocate, it's quite, it feels quite bizarre because the first time, when I first started doing animal law, and I had very little understanding of farmed animals, I couldn't believe in something called the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, that I was reading sections in the Act that told me that there were age-appropriate stages for an animal to be castrated or mulesed, or dehorned. I really struggled with this concept. And these are the sorts of things that our legislators actually do. And to us it seems quite sociopathic that you can put this in legislation, but it exists. And in New South Wales, and there are similar provisions in other states, in New South Wales it's Section 24, it provides an almost blanket defence for procedures on farm animals that inflict no unnecessary pain. Now... The question is, what constitutes unnecessary pain and unnecessary suffering when you've got an industry for live animals that's worth $155 billion a year for our, for our country? And that's one of the biggest problems. I don't need to tell you this. You know that's one of our biggest problems, that that industry is very powerful and very wealthy. And farmed animal welfare has always been seen through the prism of industry profits. In the 1980s and 1990s, the courts ended up saying that they were having difficulty determining what constituted cruelty because it was so broad, what's unnecessary suffering. And so there was also the move for, um, in the community, concerns about live export. The first concerns about live export came in the 1980s. There was some progression in the 1990s. And so there was some pressure on to for governments to try and codify what we think is unnecessary suffering. And this is where the first codes of practice came to be. So we have codes of practice and they can be found on the CRSA website that have basically been set up by industry and I think this is where most people aren't aware. There's an assumption in our community that when we have animal welfare laws, where we have these things called codes of practice, that there will naturally be a focus on animal welfare. In actual fact, all of our animal welfare laws are designed for industry by industry And, in fact, they are embedded within government. So what we have are these codes of practice where the government invites industry members to to essentially just codify their industry practices. What do you actually do out on the farm? What do you actually do in the intensive sheds? Okay, well, that's going to be what the code of practice is. And animal advocates very rarely get a look in. If they do, they're pretty much sidelined. So... The other problem, and particularly in New South Wales, we're one of the worst states, in a lot of the states, these model codes of practice, which are the very, very, very basic standards, are actually attached to the legislation, the cruelty legislation, and so they become enforceable. They're very weak, and they use language, language such as should rather than must, which waters it down again. There's a whole discussion about that I won't go into. So in New South Wales most of the codes of practice are uneven attached to the legislation so they have very little force. So because I'm from New South Wales I'll talk about some of the New South Wales stuff but basically there's been a move over the last 20 years to try and make the laws more uniform through changing over from codes of practice to welfare standards, Australian welfare standards, so that all of the ministers from all the different states can agree that this is the way we want to move to. And one of the first ones that have come through in the last couple of years is in relation to the land transport of livestock, which also includes um, transport to abattoirs. So there was a number of reviews, and at the moment we're still waiting for a review of the... um, model code of practice for uh, livestock at um, slaughterhouses. It was last reviewed in 2002, so you can imagine that we know an awful lot more about animal welfare since 2002. We know a lot more about how animals suffer. We've got much better awareness that they are far more complex, sentient beings, and yet governments, of course, are are dragging their heels. I really don't want to go down this because we know at some point it is going to be impossible for animals to be taken to slaughterhouses because of what we know about how much they suffer through that process. So that's just the process. So, for example, each state has um, its legislation, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. Underneath that are regulations about how we we use animals, and either the codes of practice are, are unscheduled, not enforceable, but scheduled and enforceable. Now, this... This is what we call regulatory capture. If, um, if you're a lawyer, it means that basically the industry completely controls how animal welfare gets turned into our very simple and basic protections. And I'm glad that Glennis is here because she was involved in this process. So what happens is you've, you've actually got a government that encourages industry to participate as decision-makers as well. So you've got the Australian... Animals of Health Australia, which is basically a private company made up of livestock companies that get to have a seat at the table, they're incorporated with government, they get funded by government in order to protect their own interests. And through this process, which is incredibly convoluted, I had a law student who actually worked as a public servant in COAG, so she understood how these things work. She spent three weeks and she kept on coming back to me saying, this is the most convoluted system I have ever seen. I cannot see how they can get any kind of outcome through this process that could possibly represent any, any benefit to animals other than industry. So that was a real eye-opener for her because she had had 12 years' experience in COAG where there were stakeholders in whatever field it was, whether it was health or social services. So she expected that all the key stakeholders from, from those industries, from the community, would be represented. This was the first time that she saw that there was an area within COAG where the stakeholders the, the animal welfare groups and the animals themselves, there were no interests. There were vets, but the vets were there representing what vets who were employed by industry. So it's, it does not protect animals in any way, shape or form. And when the Abbott government uh, came to power... This slide is now out of date because the Animal Welfare Committee was abolished by the Abbott government. So one of the few protections for animals was removed fairly speedily. So, Glennis, I was wondering if you can update us on that, how things are standing at the moment in relation to... Have you been completely frozen out? Are there any animal advocacy groups at the table?
2: Thanks, Angela. Um, there, there has, of course, been some changes. Um, the Abbott government was, and Barnaby Joyce, was only in, um, in uh, the seat for, I don't know, about six weeks or so before they actually scrapped what's called the animal welfare, uh, Australian Animal Welfare Strategy, and that meant that uh, the stakeholders um, across a range of fields of animal welfare um, and industry were was abolished. Um, that, uh, in addition to that, the Australian Animal Welfare Advisory Committee that saw that process was abolished. I was actually the uh, uh, animal advocate uh, representative on that group and that was abolished. Having said that, um, what the uh, federal government also did was step away from uh, funding and facilitating this code review and standards development process. They're still at the table, but they're just one player in addition to all of the other agriculture departments from each state and territory. And so what Angela was saying and trying to demonstrate here is that there's, it's a completely biased System That is, even if uh, at the lower level where um, you're actually reviewing and being on reference groups and standards advisory groups down here, even when you're at the table and I am at the table, RSBCA and Animals Australia are at the table, um, what happens then with the final document, the draft document, um, it actually goes through a decision making process that, where each of the agriculture ministers from each of the states make the final decision. Okay, and you know who their constituents are, Okay, which is to increase profits and productivity in the agricultural industries. And Barnaby Joyce, of course, his primary aim is to ensure that farmers get a good farm gate price. So it is biased. But going back to the process, at the present time, the sheep and cattle code um, have been reviewed, and they are in the very final stages. The ministers are just signing off on those. And not unlike the 1980s and 90s when uh, the original codes were being put together. We call them codes of cruelty by the way. That's that's what they are. Um, We still don't have major changes in those standards that are going through, and they will be enforceable standards. Uh, For example, even though there is now pain relief, not perfect by any means, but for example, uh, trisulfan pain relief for Moolzing, that won't be required in in these new standards. So there's not going to be major changes. The land transport standards, for example, um, that are through and are enforceable in each state, that's there are some benefits there which I won't go into, but for example. Can you steal my oh, okay. No, are you no, going no. to do that? No, no. Um, uh, cattle and sheep uh, in the land transport yep. standards can be off water for 48 hours. Yep, you
1: just all my thunder.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, I won't go on, but um, it, it's a biased system. We are at the table. But can I just, um, one moment, tell you that the poultry code, um, which is uh, 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 egg-laying hens, um, meat chickens, ducks, turkeys, quail. Uh, it's just started the review. I was in Sydney and, and put our view um, just, just this week. And uh, I think we are in a different space right now in that um, the, the codes say at the outset, that, and, and this review process says, that science should be taken into account and community views should be taken into account and I think that's where we can have some input. So I do actually see, I am an optimist, but I do see that we have more power now, we have more ability now to harness community, uh, uh, make people aware and harness that community sentiment and I think we can push for a better poultry code but it takes about three or four years. Thanks Glennis.
1: So I guess for me what I'm trying to show is that the, the public are, are lured into this false sense of security that it's all fine, there are all these codes of practices and that we don't have to worry about the meat that we eat in in Australia because we have all these mechanisms in place. All the bad stuff happens overseas in the Middle East. And it's particularly prevalent in relation to people who make the choice. I mean... We've all listened to all the sessions over the last couple of days about how we connect with people to get them to think and I think for me this is, this is going to be my passion is that there are a lot of people now who are choosing free range or organic and they're saying, tick that box, I can t- continue to eat meat because I'm quite confident that if they're out of the sheds and they're in the paddocks, they're only going to have that one bad day and I can live with that. So I want to talk to people, I want to tell people and if you're here today and you're listening to this to get that message out, well, guess what that one bad day looks like? 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. So that one bad day could go for several days for starters. So assuming that they've been loaded at the farm gate... What's happening in the industry, and I have um, close connections with the meat workers union. I've worked with them when we were doing the live export campaign, because they don't want to have animals exported overseas. It's lost jobs. And they also have an understanding about the impact, and Josh will talk some more about that on on human beings who work in this industry. So I'm not in the business of demonising workers who have very little choices. So... What we do know is the animals can be left for hours and, as um, Glenn has said, in terms of the new uh, land transport of, of livestock, there are, there are issues about how the animals are treated from the... Even if they have hand-knitted beanies at night on their organic farm, once they're on that truck, they're in the mainstream system. They get... Pick, an, an organic cow... And Josh was working at a beef abattoir. So we're not going to be talking about pigs or poultry. But those cows that may well have had very pleasant lives on a farm in Nimbin, as soon as they're on their truck, that life is no longer pleasant. And so one of the issues is that the transporters themselves are liable for those animals until they're delivered and put in the pens in the abattoir. In theory, sick, near-birth and injured animals are not supposed to be transported The transporters are supposed to have contingency welfare plans for delays and emergencies. What happens in reality is this industry is actually starting to concentrate. So lots of local abattoirs over the last 10, 15 years have been closed. So the animals are travelling further and further. And often in summer, in great heat... And we all know the pressure that's on ordinary truck drivers and businesses to cut costs. And so these animals could be quite dehydrated um, and quite stressed and may not have eaten for some time by the time they arrive. And Josh will talk about some of the experiences of when those animals arrive. Electric prodders are supposed to be used as a last resort. And not to be used repeatedly or young animals. And so you can imagine an animal that's been on an organic farm probably has never been through this process and they're going to be terribly reluctant to be put on the trucks and reluctant to come out of them again. The flooring surface is supposed to be provided for good grip and minimise slipping, and it's also supposed under the new livestock. Travel, uh, transport regulations that the animals through the design of the truck are supposed to be prevented from being soiled. So they're not supposed to arrive dripping in faeces and urine. But just think about how long they've been on those trucks. Particularly, as we know, more and more trucks are being trucked down from Queensland to New South Wales. So we're talking about some pretty extreme conditions. And in terms of the contingency provisions, well, who's actually looking at this? How many inspectors are out there? How much accountability is there? And bearing in mind in New South Wales, there's very limited accountability anyway. Now, as Gwyneth said when she stole my thunder, this I found quite shocking under the new... So what's happened is you've had all the different states with their different land transport rules, and so this now becomes the uniform one piece of um, uh, the standard for the entire country. So you know what happens when industry gets together. They use the lowest possible common denominator standard. So a number of states actually got worse for animals as a result of uni- having uniform laws. So you can imagine an animal that's been trucked in, in, our, in our heat in summer and you're talking about an animal that may not have had water for 48 hours. And then you look at lactating cows and, of course, tragically, we, if those that might have been involved in the bobby calf campaign a few years ago, imagine a five-day-old bobby calf in that situation. It's just criminal, but it is lawfully criminal. They're supposed to also have um, uh, being provided with spells, being given food, water and space to lie down and rest um, along the way if there have been problems or if the, if the journey is taking longer than expected. Who's policing that? So then we've, got to, then we've got the animals arriving at the slaughterhouse and once again we've got a situation where these are what the rules say, who's actually policing it? So, seriously injured uh, and sick animals are supposed to be immediately killed. It's meant to cover all of the workers are supposed to be responsible under this code from the workers who are there in the pens right through the shop floor until the animal comes out the other side of sausages. It details a requirement for unloading and penning and handling and slaughter. Once again, the use of electric prods are supposed to be minimised and the continuing prodding of animals with little or no room to move is not permitted. They're supposed to use gentle lengths of cane or metal rattles to get their attention. And animals must not be lifted by their body parts when moving into pens. Now, this is a really antiquated code of practice, as I said, from 2002, and it was when the industry was was still a bit rough and ready in its denials. And so my favourite line that I picked up out of there, it said, to deal with the unlikely event that injuries or disease may have occurred during transport, stock should be unloaded. Well, in actual fact, what happens is there are many animals that are injured and sick as a result of the journey. They're supposed to be humanely destroyed without delay. They're supposed to have water shade and feed. And animals should be provided uh, with um, assistance if they have minor injuries. And this is my favourite thing. Once they have responded to um, treatment at rest, then you can kill them. Injured animals must not be winched or dragged onto the slaughterhouse floor. Pens should be cleaned daily and provided with enough space for animals to move freely and have access to clean water. Where animals are held prior to slaughter, feed should be provided. Water misters, shade, and shelter from the elements should be provided. And pens should provide for smooth movement of stock with impervious, non-slip flooring, free of projections. Um, where animals have travelled without food or water for more than 24 hours or suffering from stress exhaustion, they should be rested for up to 96 hours so they're feeling much better and then they can be killed. Movement to the slaughterhouse should be free, as stress as possible, races should be curved, and visual and auditory stimuli should be minimised. They should be prevented from viewing dead animals ahead of them in the kill line. And they should also be prevented from seeing the actual slaughter itself. So we know what that means. We know that the regulators know that the animals are incredibly stressed. They can smell the blood. They can smell the stress. So, you know, again, it's window dressing, but the community accepts it so that they can continue to eat their free-range meat. Josh will go on and explain the slaughter process in detail, but in terms of the code requirements, the main issues in terms of animal welfare is to ensure that the animal is swiftly killed in the knocking box or immediately thereafter by sticking in the bleeding-out process. Once the animal's in the knocking box, there should be ready access to the head for stunning. And once stunned, the animal should not regain consciousness or sensibility before dying. And it is unacceptable to shackle and hoist a conscious animal. Unconscious animals are to be stuck before... Josh will explain all this. Unconscious animals are to be stuck before shackling, enabling them to be bled out. So that's an overview of what is supposed to happen. And Josh will take you through his experiences in his three years in the abattoir.
0: tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, listening to the animal advocacy program, Freedom of Species. That was a tune by a wild rabbit, titled The Flood. We're partway through a talk that was originally presented at the Animal Activist Forum in 2015. The talk was titled One Bad Day, A Look into the Transportation and Slaughter of Animals. We've just heard from Angela Pollard, an animal lawyer... She was talking about the Model Code of Practice for the Welfare of Animals specific to slaughtering establishments. We'll now hear from Josh Agland, who is an ex-slaughter industry insider.
3: So, my name is Josh. Uh, I, like you, am an animal activist. I'm a vegan and uh, I believe in animal rights and I believe in equality for all beings. But uh, sadly, for three years of my life, I worked in an Australian slaughterhouse, It was a beef slaughterhouse. And so, as Angela uh, highlighted, I was a bit, uh, you know, a bit not too keen to tell my story. Uh, It's not a story you want to share, um, definitely as a vegan. And so I really thought about it. And I come to the realisation that um, it wasn't my story to tell. It uh, it is their story. It's the innocent beings brought into this world by greed and power, and distinguished so rapidly from this world by the same greed and the same power. We must also recognise it is the story of the workers, uh, the people who in most cases are entrenched in this cycle of greed and power and blood. So United, our story serves to enable us as activists to better recognise and in turn make us more effective and credible in our activism so that one day we can end this vicious cycle. So as I start my section, uh, I would like to quote Leo Tolstoy from his book, The Slavery of Our Times. Whilst the book is focused on the intrinsic enslavement and classism of humans, it is more cruelly replicated to our non human brothers and sisters. How many such sacrifices of life there are that we either know nothing of or know of, but hardly notice considering them inevitable? So, how do I propose to improve the effectiveness of our activism? Well, like you know, unless we were raised from an early age or born vegans, we uh, have an upper hand in, what, in that what we know, we know what it's like to live with blinkers on. We all played a part at some stage in our lives in the exploitation of death of millions of animals. This fact, uh, understandably, is forgotten. Uh, I mean, once we've moved on to veganism... Who wants to remember that we participated in, in it? And, and I get that. Uh, but the crucial part to our effectiveness as an animal activist is that we do know both sides of the story. Meat eaters don't. Unless they've gone and been a vegetarian or a vegan and then gone back, they don't know by both sides of the story. We do. Uh, and so we have to use this to educate and better inform. So if I reflect back on Tulsi's apt statement... As as to me, amongst other things, it brings about the notion that whilst our nature, our human instinct, is to be kind and compassionate, seldom do these traits push forth. This is due to the subtle yet blatant enslavement of beings to such a degree, such a magnitude, that serve to desensitise our human instincts, such as to make these atrocities we inflict upon animals inevitable, if not acceptable. So I'll move on to the, the juicy bits. So I worked at a beef slaughterhouse for three years. Uh, I was a, an electrician working on the entire site from holding paddocks to frozen cotton. Uh, I was young uh, in a small town with little job prospects and that's an important fact that I'll, I'll touch on later. Now the facility I worked on killed between 800 to 1,000 animals per day depending on supply. Uh, it was a complete processing facility and it was a huge site, encompassing property and dams and, and so on. And as you can see, the main areas uh, were the unloading, the holding area, and the kill floor, byproducts chillers, boning room, and the packaging and freezing area. Now, the first two items are critical for animals, so I'll pretty much be touching on most of them. However, it is important to note that the facility is designed to enslave and desensitise no one is allowed on the kill floor unless they're authorised to be there. All other sections of the plant ensure workers only see what they are meant to see. A, a boner that cuts up the meat sees a clean chilled carcass. A packer sees a vacuum sealed piece of meat. This further serves to shield people, the workers, the very workers that enter this facility every day from what they are participating in that being the death and dismemberment of an innocent animal. And even to a further degree, the kill floor is designed so each worker only sees what they're meant to see. Only a select few of workers actually see an animal per se. The rest see a partially dismembered body that requires further dismemberment. And so the kill floor is uh, centralised around a kill chain. This is a continuous conveyor chain That moves the animals around the kill floor. Now, my first week when I started, uh, being the young electrician, I was given the gruesome parts to look after, the the kill floor. Uh, And I was told, in no uncertain terms, that the chain is everything. It must not stop and key people control the speed of this chain. Each day a quota is set and the kill floor must meet this quota. Otherwise, the workers do not get any productivity bonus money. Often, this is the money which makes their lives worth living because they're very poorly paid. So the kill floor is divided into key areas which have chain control buttons. Uh, However, if a worker activates a chain stop button, i.e. they can stop it at their station, a brightly coloured flashing light turns on above that corresponding area. Workers will shout, they'll swear, and they'll belittle any person that stops the chain. Some of it is jovial, but always with that undertone, that's my money you're stopping. As you can imagine, seldom are these controls used, even more seldom out of concern for an animal. So it all starts when a cow's transported to the abattoir. Double-storey cattle trucks dripping with manure and filled with scared Young steers were the most prevalent. However, local farmers regularly brought in their ex-dairy cows or wasted old animals in small, dingy trucks. The large cattle trucks were crammed to the edges with cattle. No matter whether they were pasture-raised, organic, free-range, they all on the same truck together. They're all covered in faeces. They're all crammed together. And they're all dehydrated and distressed. Uh, There is limited space to hold the cattle... So as a result, in uh, an experience that I had, as a result of this, we had a serious maintenance problem on the kill floor, which meant that no animals could be unloaded. We were full to capacity. So what happened was the trucks banked up to the entry of the abattoir. Now, if a truck enters the abattoir's premises, it's now the abattoir's problem. So what the abattoir did is told them to wait on the street because it's still the truck driver's problem. So that meant, on this occasion, for several hours, cattle from Queensland, 15, 20-hour road trip, were stranded for 8 to 10 hours on the side of the road in the heat. They weren't unloaded, they weren't given water, they were nothing. The faeces was overflowing onto the roads and some of those animals died on that truck that day. And that's just where their hell begins. So when they come up, they get unloaded and the steel ramps and all these flooring and stuff that they so-called design for animals, it's all nice and good for them, it gets covered in faeces, let's face it, you know. Uh, So they're slipping and sliding, a lot of these animals have never felt concrete under their feet. Uh, The workers uh, drive these petrified cattle to where they want to by electric cattle products. These prodders have a flexible arm which enables workers to forcefully prod and shock them, often in the face or the stomach, as these are the most sensitive areas which promoted more compliance. The prodding is indiscriminate, but the more resistant, the more the animal was prodded. Now, we always knew when the inspectors were due, we would get a heads up via a radio system that we all had on, all electric prodders were locked away, floors were washed and sickly animals were promptly killed. This is when I first realised the power of the industry. Inspections were rare and were always known well ahead of time. And they served only to protect the cruel and guilty while subtly in- intimidating anyone who would think of questioning this. So the yarns are basically this series of gated areas. They have slatted floor, concrete floor, so it's easy to wash down. I mean, how does an animal rest on this? Um... There's a small number of pens and they try to group them into areas because it makes it more efficient to kill them. And there's also what they call downer pens or quarantine pens where sick or you know, deathly cows are put and these pens have special forklift access because they're often killed in situ. Now one of the saddest moments I remember vividly um, was an ex-dairy cow. She arrived in the afternoon but was put in a downer pen her hips were protruding and a large pink X sprayed painted on her back and she hung her down and her eyes told me her story. Exploited to the full, there was nothing left in her soul. She had been defeated and unlike all the others who feared and fought their impending death, she seemed to accept it and in a way welcome it. She moved through the pans with persuasion as she knew the routine of milkshed to milkshed. She swayed in pain until submitting to the cold, hatched concrete. A few on-site vets came and assessed her and made the call not to slow the kill chain or stop it. As to accommodate a downer and an in-situ kill, you've got to basically stop the chain, bring the cow in with the the forklift. And so they left her there. I left that afternoon with her in my mind. Bear in mind I wasn't a vegan then. (laughs) Um, The next morning she was the first to be rounded up. She was on her own, and despite her malnourished appearance, she was pregnant. She needed no prodding, and she just lumbered up to her brutal death. Her baby would be cut from her further down the process and also used. I'll never forget her. So then the cattle are grouped, and they herded into a series of race sections, washing down and such, And these sections go from larger to smaller to funnel them in. And eventually they're a single line. They have gates, which kind of one-way gate, which means the cattle go through and it comes in behind them so they can individualise the cattle. And, I mean, you've got to remember, a lot of these animals have never seen a human. They've never felt pain of an electric prodder. They've never heard or seen or smelt this type of equipment and a lot of stress is forced onto these animals just to get them to some area. Their senses are in overload. They smell and taste the air. They smell the faeces, blood and steam is prominent. The foreign noise, the clunking of the mechanical chains, the pneumatic control valves, the shouting of the workers inside, all this industrial white noise is, is all the time there. So When I mentioned about the gates, what happens is a lot of the time these animals are young, so they follow each other. And what happens is as one goes through the gate, the other one wants to stay with their friend. So they rush through and they'll get two crammed into one little section. You can't have that. And so you can manually override these things. Um, It takes time. Instead, the preferred method was basically to continually prod cow, the rear cow, in the face while the other one pushed forward. So you can imagine one running forward, getting prodded, and the other one being cornered in the back by being prodded in the face. So they often bellowed really, really loud with pain, and others then would behind would get anxious and it would create this chain of stress and fear. And um, and so the workers they have to remain dominant and they inflict this sort of violent control upon them. So what they do is they go along and they prod them even more until the order is re-stabilised. So as you can see here on this picture, the, um, that gate is entering the knock, what they call the knocking box. And the knock, knocking box is a metal box which confines the stunned or killed animal and They're killed with a captive bolt gun. Now, above the knocking box is the slaughterman's platform. Now, this enables the worker to lean over the top of the animal to kill it. And the captive bolt gun has a 12-millimeter diameter bolt, which is shot into the center of the skull, penetrating the brain. The knocking box is not just a box. It's actually an engineered death chamber. There are a few variations, but the one I worked on had a flat floor, and it had pneumatic controls, which is air control, which pushed a steel plate underneath the chin of the animal. This was to prevent the ducking of the head. And it had a side gate, which when the animal was killed would open and an automatic pushing arm shoved the dead body out into what we called the cradle. Now, the cradle is a V-shaped base which served a few purposes. Firstly, it had sort of prolonged arms. Now, that bottom picture is not exactly what I've worked on, but um, it's similar and what these arms do, they actually make the animal turn onto its back. Down the centre of the cradle, there is a, uh, a bar that is electrified. And so when they roll out onto their back, that's energised, and it hits the spine and straightens the animal out. And once it straightens out, one guy will shackle the leg, and the other guy will... What they were doing were shoving basically plastic plugs down their throat to plug their stomach so they don't spew everywhere when they die. Now, and it's also the, the spot where they're supposed to be tested for consciousness. And this is usually done by sort of rubbing the inside of the eye to see if it blinks and reacts. Um, now, this is rarely ever done. Uh, there was probably only one person i ever seen do this, um, and he wasn't there very often because he was slower. You've got to remember that... It's, uh what I said was a 1,000 a day. It's 100 cattle per 10-hour shift. That's nearly two animals per minute. Then they move on to what we call the sticking. So the, cr- the cradle basically flips them out. They hoist them up by their leg with the chain. And a guy who's known as the sticker will slice the animal down from its sternum to its chin. He will then put his arm into that wound all the way up to his shoulder, stab the heart or cut the aorta and blood will just gush out because the heart is still pumping. His animal is still alive even though it's his unconscious. So the blood will pour out. It's like, a, it's like turning on a tap. Um, now it's important to note too in this area that the spinal cord is never severed until the head removal area. And this is important to know because I do know that uh, there is some research that shows that cattle may not be senseless to pain, even though they're unconscious, until their spinal cord supplying the brain is severed. So I just want to keep, keep that in mind. So, surprisingly, I did get on well, pretty well with the sticker. He was a pretty good character. Um, he hated his job. <laughs> It was terrible on his shoulders, terrible on his back, terrible on his mental health. And despite the fact that he did that, he hated the fact that the chain was so fast and a lot of animals come to him not stunned. There's two reasons why he didn't like that. Despite what you may think, he didn't like to cruelly do these things. So he would often... uh, What a way that he said he would find out if one wasn't killed properly... He would flash the knife across its eyes, and if its pupils dilated, that usually meant it was alive. It was scared. He knew what was happening. Um, it was also too obviously animals would kick and thrash, and so there was two reasons. While he thought it was inherently too cruel to kill them on that stunned, it also made his job very dangerous. You can imagine him as a person trying to uh, approach a beast like that with it kicking and thrashing, and he's got to do his job. So this is important to note because we must recognise that there is a human toll to this this process. So the chain will continue on. The animal then enters what they call an area where they go around a series of platforms, um, and they usually start where they cut their genitals out. Uh, usually cut the udders off if we're talking about dairy cows, um, and they will start the sort of hide removal area up the top. That's a that's a pneumatic cutter. Now that thing would cut through a car, so and it actu- once it actuates, it doesn't stop. It can't stop. It's a, it's like safety bypass. So once you in- initiate it, starts cutting. It keeps cutting until it's cut, and then it will re- release. So if you'd imagine if you come up to a cow and you're cutting its leg off and it doesn't flinch until it's in the cutting process, it's cutting it off while it's alive, and he can't do anything. That worker can literally not do anything about that. So what will happen then is it moves to what we call the hide puller. Now, this is a pretty torturous looking device. It gave me nightmares. I mean, it was a vicious action and a very swift efficiency and it basically turned this animal from an individual being to an identical hot carcass like we see in the butchers. So essentially this machine, um, without getting too technical, it has a rotating steel drum. Which, um, so basically the steel drum has got chains on it. They will attach two sides of the hide. Two operators will go down, and as that drum rotates, the platforms will move down, they will soar at it, and it will basically peel the skin off in one continuous piece. What, what happens is, once it gets past a certain point, another a bar will come out and electrify the spine again. This straightens the animal out again. This one has chains on the front leg, the one that I didn't, didn't have chains, so it's very important to straighten it out. So it straightens the legs out, straightens the head out. Um... And what happens is then once it finally pulls it down, it will rip it off its head. And it will just totally rip it off and dump it into a certain section. It's the slowest part of the kill chain and it's, uh, it's pretty crucially monitored by the, fo- the, you know, the supervisors. And you've got to remember the hides of the animals are also a valuable byproduct of the industry. I did once witness a steer still kicking and head shaking and bellowing at the hide puller once. And some workers looked on in shame as we all knew what we were about to witness—the vision of a half-mutilated cattle moving, moving and attempting to bellow and fight against the hide puller, ripped their skin off as the hide puller ripped their skin off—still haunts me to this very day. This really disturbed me, as you'd imagine. So I asked questions. The response from on-site vets was that the animal was indeed dead, but I know for a fact the workers said different. Anyway, so we'll move along and it goes to the head removal, where they take the head off. Uh, Evisceration, uh, where they slice the animal open and take the guts out. This is often where ex-dairy cows have their calves found. Now, the calf room was also uh, an area where I was looking after. And it's basically a room underneath the evisceration table where the calves are thrown down. And fetal calves are drained of their blood and specific organs, which are then sent to universities for medical testing and so on um, because they're not exposed to the world. Uh, And also, depending on their height, on their age, the calf's height is also quite valued because it's never been exposed to to the elements. Um, It's often used for traditional music instruments and clothing and so on And the finished body of this little animal is then dumped in the waste like it never existed. And while that's happening, his or her mother is going around the rest of the place. So what happens is it will go around, they'll cut all bits of meat off, they'll cut it in half, do all that kind of stuff. They have a special vacuum tool that sucks out the spinal cord and the spinal cords are... Uh, the main part for where mad cow disease resides, so they do have to suck that out (laughs) in one continuous piece. Um, Then it will go on to a chilling area and such, and basically they'll cut it up like a butcher's in a boning factory and package them away. Once it gets to this stage, these workers will never see blood. They will never see the animal being killed. The way the slaughter floor is designed, they will never see that. They also have a byproducts area, which you know, basically grinds up all the other stuff that we don't want and turns it into all weird, and wonderful things that people use shit for <laughs> cosmetic ingredients, crayons, candles, rubbers, pharmaceuticals, the, the list goes on. So, to cut it short, because I'm running out of time, I know I've probably scarred a few of you. So, how do you forget the story you just heard? Truth is, we don't, and we should never forget it. Instead, we must use it to educate, to share and to remember that we are fighting a hard fight. And it's easy to get down by the seeming ever-growing, ever defiant exploiters of animals. But we must remember that it is a huge war with many battles. Some we will win and some we will lose. And battles are seldom won using the same tactics, strategies. And therefore, we must constantly evolve and be at the ready. Some things I couldn't hope, You can take from this? Um, Firstly, we must acknowledge that the exploitation of animals goes hand in hand with the exploitation of people. It is no accident that abattoirs and the like are on the fringes of small towns. I mean, they are grotesque places, blights on our humanity. But they enslave those in those towns by being their only source of employment, paying them just enough money to get by, but not enough to get out. They use, abuse, and spit out people just as efficiently and effectively as they do animals. However, when you are trapped inside this cycle, it is very hard to break out. So as our movement, we have to offer alternatives to these people, alternative jobs, alternative industries, and get them to recognise the enslavement that they are being subjected to. We must also force these industries and the corporations that rule them to be held accountable. They have a social and moral requirement to society and the living beings they profit from, both human and non-human. They are promoting unconscionable cruelty, cruelty that they themselves could never personally inflict, cruelty that is unsustainable and which is ruining our planet, the people and the animals who inhibit it. We must never give up the fight for animals, never. Just as workers' rights were fought for, and in some ways are recognised in our society, so must animals' rights. As of now, they have zero recognition of any rights. So how do do we get them recognised? Like uh, Angela was saying, well, we need to fight for them. We need to legislate them in law. We must beware of the atrocities that can legally be inflicted upon these animals, the commodification, the enslavement and exploitation. Once aware, we must challenge governments, lawmakers and powerful corporations to enact. We must never underestimate the power of our voices we must make them heard loud and clear because we are not just speaking for ourselves but the beings of others who cannot be heard. So I want to end on that note and uh, I'll obviously take some questions. We're probably going to go over, but um, I want to thank you. I want to thank all the volunteers and everything and uh, thank you for sticking it out. Uh, it's, uh, it's been kind of riveting to share these emotional feelings, <laughs> but thank you.
0: You've been listening to a talk that was originally presented at the 2015 Animal Activist Forum in October last year. The talk was titled One Bad Day, A Look into the Transportation and Slaughter of Animals and was presented by Angela Pollard, an animal lawyer, and Josh Agland, an ex-slaughterhouse worker. That's it for today on the program. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will be back here again next Sunday, 1 to 2 p.m., um, if you would like to contact us, you can at info at freedomofspecies.org. We also have Facebook, um, Twitter, and uh, we do have a website, like as I mentioned, with podcasts. I'll leave you now with a tune from Wild Rabbit, and this is called Distant Lands. I wrote down in a book, love, Other things
1: that I thought you say. All those glances upon the wild of my heart still remain.
0: When I caught myself thinking, I would look down to mine. I knew I would
1: wait for you, and I knew I would wait a while. Yes, I knew i wait a while.